From WYPR in Baltimore, I'm Wes Moore. Welcome to Future City, our monthly radio conversation that moves the question from what's wrong to what's next. Each month on this show, we hear about innovative responses to our city's most pressing problems. We also check in on how other cities are approaching similar problems and ask what can Baltimore learn from them. Baltimore has had more than 300 annual homicides for the past three years, and at the time of this recording, there have been nearly 900 shootings this year in the city. Young people have been at the forefront of this violence. Many of Baltimore's youth, especially ones who live in low-income black and brown communities, have grown up in a climate of fear, seeing friends and family members being killed or injured by street violence. For many years, politicians and media have pointed fingers at gangs, blaming them for crime in Baltimore. But Baltimore is different from other cities. Neighborhood cliques are more common than more established and traditional gangs like Bloods and Crips. But the cycle of violence, that comes from interpersonal beefs and slights that can lead to ongoing retaliatory violence that touches many in the city. Today, we explore youth violence and crime in Baltimore and explore gangs in the city. Why do young people join them? How can violence between different crews be reduced? And how are both current and former gang members participating in the violence interruption projects in Baltimore and in other cities like Chicago? So we're going to start with Natasha Pratt-Harris. She's an associate professor and coordinator of the criminal justice program in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Morgan State University. Dr. Pratt-Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the term gang Mm -hmm. is so ubiquitous and people will use it in such a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. What exactly do we mean when we are talking about that? Well, often in legislation, whether it be federal or uh, more local legislation, there's a description of gangs based upon the criminal element. So the definition is based upon an organization of um, individuals, oftentimes noted as at least five, um, who are intent upon engaging in some type of criminal activity to maintain their status, to build some type of income for that group. Um, have some type of prestige, a means to kind of have a presence or representation in a given area. And it's, again, often referenced as criminal. But when you expand the definition of a gang and take away the concept of a criminal gang, you recognize it can be a group of people who have similar interests and it's not always criminal. But you also have gangs who are responsible for selling drugs, which is illegal and a criminal offense. But their activity doesn't always mean violence. But there's definitely an association between the drug sale, turf wars and violence. So that's there. But again, on a consistent basis from a pop culture kind of description from legislation, there's this blanket idea that gangs or all gangs are criminal gangs. But that's not necessarily the case when you expand the definition. But you just touched on something really important there, the idea that these gangs, these these cliques, these structures mm-hmm. are oftentimes incorporated and, and motivated by different things. Exactly. What is the scale and mm-hmm. the variety of reasons that people will become mm-hmm. gang affiliated? Well, I recognize that it can be almost a natural reality where it's in a family where it's passed down through the generations and people just recognize that 
when they reach a certain point in their life at a certain age as a, maybe a 12-year-old or maybe even younger, they become affiliated with the gang by nature of what happens in their family, right? Then you recognize that some people grow up in neighborhoods or communities where almost a rites of passage is to become a part of a gang because that is kind of a central force in that community. People who are vulnerable to being affiliated with gangs engage because they feel threatened if they're not engaged. So there's discussion about people being jumped into gangs and they have to kind of partake unless, of course, they find a way out of it. People engage or affiliate themselves with gangs to be protected. And this is oftentimes seen in our prisons where being associated with a gang coming in and or joining one while detained offers some sort of protection while someone's detained. On the outside, same thing. If you are part of this particular gang or a gang, there's some measure of protection that you're going to get. When we look at the human potential, people join gangs or become a part of gangs because of the sense of belonging. The reality that this group offers a family, whether or not the person is, in fact, coming from a traditional family structure. And that will, within itself plays kind of like the substitute for a family, however we define family. Interestingly enough, we are very textbook when we talk about what a family looks like in terms of two parents and the children. What we recognize with our gangs there are multiple entities, almost like multiple family structures, and persons actually identify with those structures because it speaks to how they, in fact, define family or what they feel about what it means to be a family. Do people often think that it's filling something, it's filling some type of void that is not there, not open, not present? Mm-hmm. Is that always the case when we're looking at people who end up becoming gang affiliates? Well, when you think about For example, the familiar realities of gang involvement. So if a family member, this is a part of the family structure, I don't necessarily say that it's filling a void. It's almost just a part of the process of being a part of this family that one becomes affiliated with a gang. But for the most part, people recognize affiliation with anything whether it be a gang or a church, a particular school and having pride or a team, whether it's a void or not, it's filling something like just to have this likeness with another or likeness with a group. And people as humans have this yearning to be a part of being an individual or a single in a society where groups are how we kind of engage. That's not the norm. The norm is to be a part of groups. We, however, tend to look at something like a gang where we often talk about gangs as criminal gangs. We see the deviance in so much as the activity, not in recognizing necessarily the humanity of why someone engages. And the humanity kind of speaks volumes as it relates to why someone you know, becomes a part of a gang. How different are the gangs in Baltimore versus other locations? When I began teaching at Morgan State, this was in 2007, 2008, this is when I became aware that people in the city were identifying with gangs that are popularly known, like the Bloods and the Crips, right? And there was a kind of upsurge based upon my observations of gang affiliation in Baltimore City. You can actually see persons who were wearing the red and the blue bandanas. Growing up in Baltimore City, any notion of a gang wasn't a part of our verbiage. We recognized that there were neighborhood structures, there were turfs, people protected their neighborhood, they protected their turf, and that wasn't necessarily 
described as a gang because more popularly it was again the Crips and the Bloods and for me watching Good Times the Junior Warlords you know and and that type of thing but during that time you know we recognized that we had sets of the Crips and the Bloods who were situated here in Baltimore recruited members and even within that reality of upsurge of gang activity or gang affiliation in Baltimore City with these very traditional or well-known gangs Baltimore continues to be a place where the neighborhoods, the affiliation based upon which street someone's, you know, known to frequent or hang out at, that is more so how we are describing our gangs in Baltimore. And the term gang, again, for me, when I even use the language, is kind of difficult because growing up in this city, we didn't say gangs. You know, we just knew the, the guys who lived on Cater and Old York, which is the part of town I'm from, you know, and it wasn't the word gang used. I, I sometimes feel that we make the attempt to solve or address a problem using a term that just makes sense. But this neighborhood reality and, you know, what's happened in this city for a very long time, it doesn't always make sense to what person is doing as it relates to law enforcement and protection. But when we're talking about some of the bigger elements of Baltimore and some of the, you know, some of the larger gangs Mm -hmm. in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Who are we talking about? Well, um, interesting. I had a conversation with my teenager and I said, hey, what are the what are the gangs of Baltimore? And she just gave me off the top of her head, BGF, Black Gorilla Family. She talked about the Crips. She talked about the Bloods. And I just read an article about the TTG out of Sandtown, Winchester. Right. And that's who police have identified as gangs in Baltimore. About five years ago was the Hunters, maybe more than five years ago, the Hunters. Yeah. Um, but these different names that come up based upon this affiliation and or this um, grouping where they've kind of self-identified as a particular you know, uh, gang or, or group. So they've given themselves that particular name. But again, based upon my assessments of what happens in our city, we have gang, we have gang affiliation, but the neighborhood structures speak volumes to, you know, how we kind of get around in the city to address gang activity or gang. It's about it's about these neighborhoods. It's about TTG is Sandtown, Winchester. That's where they are situated. That's kind of addressing what's happened with that particular gang is really about addressing what's going on in that particular neighborhood. What's happening at those schools? How are we engaging as a community from the law enforcement side, from just general community engagement side? That speaks to why. When we talk about Bloods and the Crips coming to Baltimore and a set being established, sets being established in Baltimore, we recognize that Baltimore was ripe for this type of activity because of some of the decay that we've seen in the city over time, because of structures that mean that we have a significant number of people who've been detained, incarcerated. So you lose family members. We have a significant number of people who've lost their lives due to violence and other issues. Issues related to schools being compromised based upon whatever's happening in our schools. You're going to have the opportunity for a set to be established in Baltimore because it's definitely lending itself to people being protected, people establishing clout, and having a sense of family. One that oftentimes gets brought up and, and is be, has, their name has become much more known mm-hmm. is BGF. Mm-hmm. How is BGF different from the ones you just mentioned before in terms of either structure, origins? Is there something different about BGF? Or would you say, actually, 
I would actually put BGF in the same category as the Bloods or the Crips in terms of everything you just asked. Well, historically speaking, there's this acknowledgement that gangs were there to protect the community. Gangs have been established in, you know, in the beginning to protect the community, to feed the kids, to provide resources. And BGF speaks specifically about being established as an umbrella of the Black Panther movement. And black folks consistently talk about Black Panthers as being connected and involved in feeding children in particular, protecting children, protecting communities who've been victimized in so many ways, police brutality, community violence, you know, those those types of things. So BGF speaks to that. But when I compare like the Crips and the Bloods and look at their history, um, it's not that different in terms of the establishment, you know, with the whole idea to protect the community. You know, we've seen whole slates of legislation that has been proposed to be able to deal with this. Mm -hmm. New laws, new policing techniques. Mm -hmm. Where are we now when we're talking about the idea of proposed legislation that can deal with the issue and the growth of gangs? And have those movements gotten us anywhere, made made communities any safer, or fundamentally addressed the issues that gangs also are, 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 are filling in for? Well, you may be referencing the strike force here yes. in Baltimore City. You have the feds. You have the local law enforcement. Um, you have the county executive. You have the mayor. You have a whole host of people who are working together to uh, make the attempt to identify people who are gang leaders to kind of hone in on the realities of this city as it relates to violence. Does that change or impact what's going to happen in terms of gang-related activity or murders in Baltimore? Well, the verdict is out, on the strike force initiative at least. But we recognize that the reactory styles of everything, even if it's legislation after the fact, isn't all that we can do to kind of address something like a gang or gang activities. It really is prior to the prevention, the reduction, you know, on the forefront of even having the potential for a gang or gang affiliates to kind of inspire more membership, right? There's also this reality that former gang bangers, as they may call themselves, actually doing the work on the street to kind of acknowledge that they know what it means to be a member of a gang. They know the impact gangs have on communities and recognizing that our children are vulnerable to that and them being called upon to help address and or solve the realities of gangs or gang activity in a city like Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So you actually have former or active members of Bloods or Crips in Baltimore City who are actually on a grassroots side doing a lot of work. Then you have supported initiatives like Safe Streets, mm-hmm. where Safe Streets members are former gang affiliates in many cases, and them themselves working to address to kind of actually head on reducing the potential for violence, especially as it relates to retaliation violence. But again, being connected to community to recognize what's going on. I'm a proponent and will consistently talk about the entire community, including our law enforcement community, consistently making the attempt to just do more engagement, having conversations with young people, showing up before something happens, right? And being visible so that it's known that together we're trying to address or solve any of our problems, including gang activity in the city of Baltimore. Some of the cities that have been most successful to be able to address mm-hmm. you know, this issue, who are some of those cities and what did they do? 
what we attempted to do in Baltimore, but it didn't work because Baltimore is a different city than a city like New York. But in in a city like New York, there was this push to have zero tolerance policing, right? And we recognize that. And we can see numbers that have declined in New York. It hasn't eradicated or eliminated the problems that New York saw when it was at its peak. But a city like New York has had the outcomes that they were seeking in terms of reducing violence, reducing gang activity and the like. Um, But that was via zero tolerance. Then you have other cities that didn't necessarily apply zero tolerance policing like Seattle, where they, in fact, have addressed community engagement. I'm not talking about within the past five to 10 years, talking about 10 to 15 years ago, where they've seen decline or saw declines in gang related activity and or violence. So places like that didn't necessarily apply zero tolerance policing, but more community engagement models. And then a city like New York who did zero tolerance policing. In Baltimore, we would definitely need a a structure that kind of addresses the neighborhoods and the neighborhood dynamics and who are folks listening to in the first place. Are they listening to a former gang affiliate as it relates to gang activity in Baltimore? Or are they going to listen to law enforcement where their relationship hasn't been the sweetest, right? And or are we working together with law enforcement, with our former gang affiliates or current gang affiliates to work together to address the potential for gang activity in a particular community, again, on the prevention side, not on the reactory side. So I, we know that zero tolerance didn't work in this particular city because we were arresting and arresting and arresting and not necessarily addressing the problem because we still see upticks in violence while we've seen upticks in actual uh, arrests. You are listening to Future City, and I've been speaking with Dr. Natasha Pratt-Harris, who is the Associate Professor and Coordinator for the Criminal Justice Program and the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at our very own Morgan State University here in Baltimore. Dr. Pratt-Harris and proud Western grad. Uh, This is a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me again. We have to take a break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll hear about gangs in Chicago and how both current and former gang members there are participating in violence interruption projects. Stay tuned. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Welcome back, and I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR, our monthly radio conversation that moves the question from what's wrong to what's next. Each month on the show, we lift up examples of innovative ideas making positive changes in other cities and ask, could they work here? Are they already working here? And if not, why not? Well, on today's show, we're discussing youth violence and gangs in Baltimore, Now let's shift our focus to another city that's been wrestling with youth violence and homicides, Chicago. Gun violence in Chicago has been called an epidemic, and more than 530 people were murdered there last year alone. But the city has taken some innovative approaches to stopping that violence. To learn more, we're incredibly excited to talk with Dr. Lance Williams. He's a professor of urban community studies at Northeastern Illinois University. He is a gang and youth violence intervention worker and the author of the book, the almighty Black Pea Stone Nation, the rise, fall, and resurgence of an American gang. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for talking with us today, and welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me, Wes. And so, Dr. Williams, you have written extensively about gangs in Chicago and elsewhere, but the ways that they have evolved from the 20th century until today, including what you call the fracturing of African-American gangs. How have gangs changed during that time period that you talk about and study? Well, I think it's important to uh, look at the historical uh, evolution of uh, Chicago African-American gangs date back to the early 20th century. The evolution is really connected and tied to the extreme segregation of African-Americans in very marginalized spaces and communities in Chicago. Most people know the history of African-Americans in, in northern cities, and particularly in Chicago, black people were concentrated in a community area known as Bronzeville. Mm-hmm. Over the years, uh, particularly with the uh, end of restrictive covenants in 1948, black people then were given opportunities to move out of this space. But prior to moving out of the space for about close to 40 years, street gangs began to emerge, many of them connected to what we call old black street gangsters in a form of policy kings who controlled the gambling lottery type of um, underground economy. But when black people began to be displaced from these communities and settled into other marginalized areas of the city, that created a disorganization of the culture and the economy, the underground economy. And it caused a lot of confusion in these new spaces. And that's when we began to see black youth gangs flourish. And they flourished uh, in these communities probably for another 40 years or so. And then we had another resurgence of displacement. But this time, the displacement that begins in the uh, late 80s, early 90s into the 2000s is rooted in public housing demolition when large groups of African-Americans were displaced from public housing and also the reconstituting of community schools that began in the 2000s. So in these communities where black youth gangs flourished, they were dispersed into other neighborhoods. The federal agencies, uh, FBI, DEA, began to target the leaders of of these large street gangs like the Blackstones slash El Rukens. Those are two separate names for one gang, but one of the uh, predominant African-American gangs in Chicago, also another large gang, the Gangster Disciples and the Black Disciples, and the Vice Lords as well. Their leadership was targeted by federal prosecutions taking the leaders off out of these organizations, and that caused the bodies to kind of fragment. At the same time, you had the housing displacement. So all of this stuff is kind of going on at the same time, and it created a massive disorganization, unsettled spaces, which really drove a lot of the violence that we've been seeing over the last 15 years or so. You mentioned how the evolution of the structures and the evolution of the takeaways you know, from, from these organizations has, have evolved. Have the way we've addressed it, have the way that we've policed it, have the way that we've controlled it evolved as well? And has it evolved in the same level of speed and, uh, and, 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 and discipline? The city has really had a difficult time attacking the problem of violence, particularly in the African-American community. Yeah. It's for two major reasons. One is because the solution to these problems in many cases carries political connotations. And when I say political connotations, what's actually going on in these neighborhoods is dysfunction rooted in people not having access to intergenerational institutional power. Mm -hmm. From a political perspective, in order to solve this problem, 
you have to rebuild these institutions. You have to rebuild school spaces. You have to rebuild the businesses and, and, and the faith communities. And then on the other hand, you also have the problem of just using primary law enforcement approaches to solving these problems. The problem itself is not a criminal problem. It's, it's more of a socioeconomic slash cultural problem. And in order to solve it, it, it requires a massive amount of public resources. And the city just has struggled to organize themselves around bringing the types of resources that are actually needed to solve the problem. You know, you have to be able to provide affordable housing. You have to rebuild the infrastructure for public schools because all of that has been dismantled. It's just been too much of a, a task for city government. And when you talk about how that culture then permeates the community. You talk really convincingly about the what is the role of social media, what is the role of media, what is the role of entertainment in this larger conversation. You talk about something called drill and yes. how drill also played a role in this. What is drill? Well, drill is a, a hyper expression of rap music that kind of grows out of the gangster rap culture. But it has more extreme expression as it relates lyrically, as it relates to violence and misogyny and uh, the glorification of the whole street culture, right? And really, drill is an expression of really hard, violent living in Chicago, where Chicago artists like Chief Keef and Lil Durk and G Herbo, these are kids who were 2010 babies. Yeah. You know, they, they, they came up as teenagers in an era where Chicago had really hit its peak in terms of marginalization. So their music expresses this experience, this street experience. Because it is a popular form of, of music, again, that has been popularized all over the world, it becomes glorified, it becomes something that a lot of young people are attracted to and engage in, and as they engage in it, in its expression throughout social media, it exacerbates the violence because one of the major components of drill music is about retaliation against your ops. The music needs to express, if some of my homies get killed, then it's incumbent upon me and my guys to go retaliate. And the music pretty much is a song track for that type of feuding going on back and forth. And then these these attacks and these acts that play out in real life then are posted to social media, exacerbating the problem even more. You've had a chance to see this from so many different perspectives, to including working as a violence interrupter in Chicago for many years yourself. What are the things that you have seen that have the highest potential of working in a scalable way? And what are the things that you have seen that actually our continued focus on it is actually not going to help to get us to where we need to get to. Let's start with the second part of that, and that is taking a law enforcement approach to it, a criminal justice approach to it, is absolutely the wrong-headed approach, uh, has not demonstrated any effective ways of reducing a problem. You know, the criminal justice element attempts to target, you know, leadership of, of street gangs and contextualizing everything uh, as it relates to young black males and violence is gang related. Most of, of this violence is, is interpersonal. It's, it's interpersonal conflict between young African-American males who are stressed out, who are high, intoxicated, but primarily stressed and depressed. 
and they play out their frustration and their rage in forms of violence against each other. But it's not gang related as much as it is interpersonal kind of violence. And so if you take a law enforcement approach to this, you can't actually solve it because you're attempting to attack a gang when this thing is actually interpersonal and culturally related. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're just spinning your wheels and you are wasting massive amounts of resources because it's so expensive to mobilize in that type of way. Now, what we see as being effective are programs, you know, you have uh, new organizations like Chicago Cred who are beginning to do wraparound services and provide services to this population where they are doing family therapy. And see, family therapy is really the core of solving this problem. So in other words, if you have kids that have demonstrated the capacity to do violence, have been involved in shootings, the only way to get in the middle of that and interrupt it is that you have to provide wraparound services to their whole family, right? Everybody in the household, everybody on the block is the most effective way to uh, resolve the problem. And also, it's got to be culturally centered. In other words, it's got to keep in mind that there's a particular culture that is associated with young black males in street life that cannot be ignored. Your intervention has to be delivered by individuals who understand that culture, that are from that culture, that are not judgmental in a negative way of that culture, but understand it in a way that they can retool it and move it into a direction that makes it pro-social and less anti-social. When we talk about the role that people who have experience in this, real-life, practical histories and experience in this, we talk about how important it is when it comes to being an effective violence interrupter, right? Because there's a credibility that comes to it when you go into community. Do we have that same level of focus and intention when it comes to the way we think about government intervention and the role of government, the role of philanthropy, the role of business? Do we have the same voices who are helping to make the decisions in those spaces as we insist upon having those voices when it comes to things like violence interrupters? Unfortunately, we do not. So in terms of public officials, government entities have been, you know, reluctant to get involved at this level for political reasons. You go into a violent hood in in Chicago, and let's say the city decides that it wants to approach this from this, you know, grassroots perspective, and you mobilize a cadre of young African-American males who have that credibility that you mentioned, and you empower them, that you employ them to actually go into the community and to begin to change the young men that are active in the violence, right? So what you've just done is you've mobilized and you've empowered in a real way because it takes massive amounts of resources. You have to put people on the payroll. You have to give them resources where they can put the young men that they are working with to work. But when you do that, you've also mobilized a large part of the community in a way that they now have political power. And so now they become competition. And so I think that's the reason that you not have not had elected officials stepping up to the plate. Most of this work that's being done successfully is done by private entities that are getting private funding because you don't even see a lot of resources coming from federal, state, and local public agencies. It's mainly private entities that are putting money into this process. And it's showing to be effective, but, you know, there are limitations to that because the resources are scarce. You've been listening to Future City, and I have been had the joy of speaking with Dr. Lance Williams. He is a professor of urban community studies at Northeastern Illinois University. 
a gang and youth violence intervention worker and also author of the book, The Almighty Black Peace Stone Nation, The Rise, Fall and Resurgence of an American Gang. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We have to take a quick break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll hear about Safe Streets, a violence interruption program in Baltimore. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. I am Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR. Each month on the show, we hear about innovative responses to our city's most pressing challenges. We also check in on how other cities are approaching similar problems, and we ask, what can Baltimore learn from them? So on today's show, we're discussing youth violence and gangs here in Baltimore. We've heard about why young people join gangs and crews. And we've heard about the fracturing of gangs in Chicago and how anti-violence activists there are actually disrupting the cycle of retaliatory shootings. But now, let's come back home and let's come to Baltimore. Dante Barksdale is an outreach coordinator for Safe Streets Baltimore, a program that seeks to reduce violence through de-escalation and mediation in the mayor's office of criminal justice. Mr. Barksdale, blessing having you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Wes. Thanks for having me. So, so, so first, uh, I want to just ground the listener into what exactly is Safe Streets? Safe Streets is a public health initiative to reduce shootings and homicides, but it's actually a spinoff of a program formerly called Ceasefire, which is called Cure Violence now. Cure Violence was created by an epidemiologist by the name of Dr. Gary Slucker, who was treating like cholera and stuff like that over in Africa. And then when he came back to Chicago, he kind of laid this map, you know, in the same ideologies of how World Health Organizations attack epidemics. And he used that same strategy for homicides Mm -hmm. because he looked at homicides as an epidemic, as a disease, and his explanation is that it spreads from one person to another, just like any other infectious disease. So to clear everybody up, Safe Streets is not a citywide program. Mm. The city is 96 square miles. Safe Streets covers maybe two square miles of the city. So we're in 10 locations, but most of the locations may only be eight blocks by five blocks. It'll be some community organization. We have um, Franklin Square. We have the top and bottom of Park Heights. We have Cherry Hill, Brooklyn, Bel Air Edison, McAldery Park. Sandtown and Penn North. The actual work, man, looks like this. Our guys come in, and at the beginning of their shift, what they do is they brief. And they brief about what's going on in the streets, what's going on in the neighborhoods, the boundary in which safe streets is actually implemented. When our guys come in, after they brief, they're talking about who just came home. Mm. Does he have a conflict with somebody who told on him? They're talking about who just stole somebody's stash down on such and such street? They're talking about who came through robbing. They're talking about, is there any guys in this neighborhood selling drugs on a corner where you think it could be a conflict? So when we go out, if we know that these things are taking place, what we do is we go out and we canvas. And we canvas for about four or five hours, all of the members of the site collectively. So they're walking through the neighborhood, and this is called identifying and detecting 
violence. Now, the crux of our program is we have what you call credible messages. Our credible messages are guys who may have destroyed the community before, but now he has another trajectory and he's trying to reduce shootings and homicides. He's using his credibility to go back in to do conflict mediation and connect people to resources. Because we see that it's kind of easy for a guy to listen to somebody who they seen in this mess before. And I'm completely with you, and the data backs up the fact mm-hmm. that there's a credibility piece to it, mm-hmm. right? So someone will listen to somebody if they mm-hmm. feel like they actually understand the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about what's taking place with Safe Streets also is there's an understanding and an acknowledgement amongst the interrupters mm-hmm. about their time, their role, their experiences. How does that process work? How does a process work when you're talking about someone who is now coming into this role of violence interrupter? But in order for them to do that, there needs to be an understanding and an acknowledgement and a reconciliation with that about their own past, their own experiences, and how they're ready to turn. It's kind of like a real rigorous process to get a guy on with safe streets. So first of all, as the outreach coordinator, it's actually my job to do walkthroughs with this guy through the community. If we have an existing site, what we'll do is we'll have guys from the existing site help to pick these individuals for a hiring panel, right? Then what we do after that, we send their names to the police department so they could be vetted. The police department has intel that may tell us whether a guy is kind of still in the life. Does this guy, is he a part of this gang or that gang or stuff like that? But it gives us intel and it gives us a way to be able to look at these guys before we bring them in. So it's rigorous. I'll take them out. I'll walk them. If I'm walking down the street and people saying, y'all out yet? This guy might be still into something. You know, if I'm walking down this street and he looking all behind his back, he might be a robber or something. Or he shot somebody. You'll see that in his behavior because I'm from the street and he's from the street. So I'm going to understand his behavior. After that, what we do is we do a 40-hour training with them. Some of those modules talk about your past life, how it can affect you in this work. So we bring those things up because even though guys may believe that, oh, I'm the toughest guy in my neighborhood, I can squash any beefs. When you go through this training, you find out that it's things that you didn't even think about even being from the streets. Mm. And when you had that conversation with multiple individuals, those things come out. I might think that you and Mark, oh, these are my guys. I can mediate them. And y'all really going at it. Y'all got pulling guns out on him. He done shot at you. You done shot at him. And I said, well, I got a good rapport with him. I'm going to call Wes. I'm going to call Mark. And I'm going to get them to come holler at me. But that's a big mistake. Because mm. I can't handle two guys by myself, even if I believe that I can. So going through those trainings and understanding through trial and error and making those mistakes, we understand that guys need to be taught these things. You don't want to be mediating in a dark warehouse. You won't want to be mediating if guys aren't following the rules. When we do mediations, the first thing we ask is, are you willing to mediate? So once we find out if a guy is willing to mediate, then we put rules in place. All right, 
All right, when we come do the mediation, you can bring two of your guys and you, he can bring two of his guys. If you show up to mediation, he got two of his guys, you got five of your guys' mediation off. Yeah. You already broke the rules. So I know you're going to break the other rules. If you already broke the first rule, you bought too many guys or you didn't want to meet in a certain place. We get there and you call me, tell no, come around the corner. Mediation off, you breaking the rules. So having that training and all of those kinds of things in place for that, I think it helps build these guys. And it's a camaraderie thing. I'm not going to say that every guy has been perfect. We have had some that might blow up. And those mediations don't look like, hey, can you go put your gun down? Sometimes it turns into, you know, well, you're not like that or whatever or whatever. But you have to remain patient. When you mediate and you just have to definitely understand yourself. So that's why as guys, we check in with one another. You know, we have those briefings. We have those deep briefings. We have our supervisors have one-on-ones with our guys. We have our directors have one-on-ones with our supervisors. We have, like, groups and circles and stuff like that because we know that we have to continue to build our camaraderie and be strong if we're going to be fighting in these streets because... They need us. Do you notice a difference between your level of impact depending on neighborhood, clique, group, et cetera? Do you notice that, hey, we are actually more effective in East Baltimore than West Baltimore? Do you say we're more effective with a group or a clique or a gang from one neighborhood than we are versus the larger national ones like the Bloods or the Crips? What I can say is Baltimore is different. Okay. Right? This is not really a gang town. The news make this a gang town. This is a city of blocks and housing projects and stuff like this. This is not a gang city. See, most of the guys you know that's part of the BGF gang are guys who went to jail and they were made BGF. But when they go back home, they from Green Mountain North. (laughs) They could give a rat's tail about some BGF. We don't have a really bad gang problem. And the city should thank the BGF for not having a bunch of Bloods and Crips in this town. In the year 2000, maybe 99, 2000, 2001, it was red rags all on all these poles, bro. Mm. Little kids was running around with red flags, blue flags. But when they went to jail, it all changed. A lot of them became what? (laughs) BGF. Because they not in no gang for real. They was just getting in there, some of them, for protection. You know, one of the biggest problems I think I see about this violence, you got a world full of kids who have committed hundreds and hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of murders psychologically on that video game. But see, on that video game, you can start over. On that video game, you don't go to trial when you blow the dude's head off. You don't go to trial when you steal a car. But that stuff is working on these kids psychological. Because some of them come out here and play that game and realize it ain't no game once they put them cuffs on them and they sitting in prison and they talking about 200 years. I think our kids should, in fifth grade and sixth grade, when you first start getting bad, I think they should have a class that actually tells you how much time you can get for just strong arm robbery. Because a kid doesn't understand the capacity. I got a gun and I go up the West and I get his $5. To the kid, I just robbed him for $5. 
But that's robbery, first degree assault, handgun in the commission of a felony. All those charges, 50, 60, 70 years in prison. But kids don't understand that. But is it that the kids don't understand it? Or I think for so many of the kids we're talking about, they understand it in a way because they've seen it, right? They've seen it with family members. They've mm-hmm. seen it with people, you know, in the neighborhood who are, who are gone. Just but it's not a reality until you see it. It ain't no reality. You sitting by in the courtroom like, damn, this real. A lot of these kids, bro, have not separated fiction from reality. You know, a lot of them are traumatized. You know what I mean? Kids in this city has witnessed homicides, probably 85% of them. That's trauma, bro. We talking about trauma. We talking a mental health state. And then this is the biggest thing. When I went to college and got my degree in social work, bro, I found out about something called the Maslow Hierarchy of Needs. Mm-hmm. They say if you do not take care of your physiological needs, you will not move to the next level. Meaning, if I'm hungry, dirty, ain't had no sleep, not feeling safe, I'm not going to go to school. Mm-hmm. That's most of our kids, bro. Because I hear a lot of people say stuff on the radio or get on Facebook or Instagram and comment, oh, these kids out here doing this, these kids out here doing that. You can't talk about that kind of stuff until somebody hunted you with a gun. Because when 344 murders happened last year, all of those people who committed those homicides wasn't bad people, bro. I'm not saying it's all right to go shoot nobody. I'm saying every shooter is not a bad person. Some of them been pushed in the corner. What I'm saying is we don't know what we will do if we were put in some of these situations. Some of these people are in some dreadful situations, man. The victims are perpetrators and the perpetrators are victims. Most dudes who shoot people been shot before. <laughs> most of the time. And most dudes that get shot once, they more likely to get shot again. What is it, 40 times more likely? And say streets, this is the stuff we trying to educate kids about. We'll talk, go to the kids like, bro, the lady that called the police on you on the corner for you sitting on that stuff, she not a rat. Your man a rat that went with you on that robbery, and then he turned state evidence on you. He a rat. That guy you commit crimes with and then told the police on you, he's a rat. If an old lady, a young man, a woman, a somebody, a regular citizen, witness a homicide and go to court, and testify. They're not no rat. This is what we teach the kids in our safe street sites. Well, I got to tell you, we are, uh, we're all thankful for not just what you do, but how many people you're bringing along with you and how many people are saved because you do what you do. Um, I've been speaking to Dante Barksdale, and Mr. Barksdale is the outreach coordinator for safe streets here in Baltimore in the mayor's office of criminal justice. Mr. Barksdale, bless you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Appreciate you. So before we close out, I would just like to leave us with just a few thoughts. Addressing the pain so many of the young people of this city are facing is not easy. There is no single entity that is responsible for the level of violence and hurt that this city is currently enduring. Therefore, there will not be one entity with the sole responsibility to get us out. 
The way to address the rise of gangs is to address the void that these gangs moved in to fill in the first place. People don't join gangs because they look forward to life's impermanence. They don't get excited to think about the untimely death of a family member or a loved one, or the vision of violence that you can never unsee and that will haunt you for the rest of your life. People are experiencing this because they don't have a choice. Gangs are filling voids that shouldn't be voids in the first place. Oftentimes, people talk about the things that make gangs so complicated to address, and the truth is, their structures are not excessively complicated. They look at the same way that we look at Fortune 500 companies or the same way we look at military organizations, where there's structure, there's promoted responsibility, there's accountability, there's a sense of belonging. The solution to our gang problem doesn't require genius. It requires courage. A courage to deal with the deeper problems and a courage to have a belief that the people who are currently gang-affiliated deserve saving in the first place. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Thanks to WYPR intern James Burroughs of Baltimore Lab School for providing original music for this episode. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fidler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.